So I guess this is a good time of year for being thankful and counting your blessings. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I'm thankful for this year is a new season of The Crown on Netflix. Maybe you're watching this as I am, binge-watching on what you call English royalty days with clotted cream and lemon curd, like I did this weekend. Maybe you're stringing them out like pearls on a strand, savoring each episode one by one in exactly the way that it deserves to be savored. By some accounts, The Crown is the most expensive TV show ever made. So whether you're tuning in for the sumptuous costumes and the settings, or you're tuning in for the corgis, the Crown is maybe our, our most resonant exploration of the nature of monarchy, what it means to lead a nation in crisis, and how the public and private worlds of an incredibly privileged class of people intersect with the rise of a media-saturated celebrity culture with a 24-hour news cycle. It's great fun. And there's this really interesting moment at the end of the third episode, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but all of this, I heard that, I heard that out there. All of this stuff is historical, it's on Wikipedia. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Were you paying attention in 1966? Well, this, this is here to, to test your stuff. Episode three focuses on Queen Elizabeth's response to the Aberfan disaster in 1966. That's when a coal mine collapsed on top of an elementary school and killed hundreds of kids. Members of the labor government attempting were, were attempting to shift the public blame. They were calling on the queen, calling her out for not visiting the site of the disaster immediately following what happened. She says, the crown visits hospitals. We do not visit disaster sites. That's been official protocol. But finally, under great pressure, Queen Elizabeth goes to Wales to be there in the disaster site to meet the families. She lays funeral wreaths on graves. She meets with those who have lost loved ones rather stiffly. That's not really her thing. In the process of prepping her for this highly publicized visit, an assistant warns Queen Elizabeth, ma'am, you may wish to consider that this is Wales, not England. A display of emotion would not just be considered appropriate. It is expected. Public displays of emotion are kind of like Queen Elizabeth's kryptonite. She's been conditioned not just by this infamous stiff upper lip culture, but by decades of training and breeding to embody a kind of distant, remote, removed authority. Weeping in public is not in her wheelhouse. And at the end of the episode, she's reflecting with her prime minister, Harold Wilson, as to why she finds these public acts of ritualized mourning so difficult. She says, you know, the people of Wales deserved a display of compassion. They deserved a demonstration of empathy from their queen. I dabbed a bone-dry eye, and by some miracle, no one noticed. I want that stitched on a sampler, by the way. I love that line, I dabbed a bone dry eye. Only Elizabeth can get away with that one. The prime minister tries to reassure her, right? Her coolness under pressure, he says, is actually what makes her good at her job. No one needs hysteria, he says, from their head of state. The truth is we barely need humanity from you. But that's actually not Elizabeth's real concern. She says, you know, I've known for some time that there's something missing in me. There's something wrong with me. She recounts her inability to feel emotion when she was visiting hospitals with her parents during the Blitz or at the birth of her first child. The problem is not just that she's uncomfortable with public displays of emotion. The problem seems to be that she feels like she can't get in touch with her emotional life even when she's alone. She actually becomes a little bit obsessed with 
this hymn that was sung at the funeral in Aberfam, Jesus, lover of my soul. Uh, her husband, Philip, had been there for this, for this event, for the funeral, and Elizabeth keeps asking him, did you weep? Did you weep? She asks him over and over. Finally, she gets a recording of this, of this hymn and plays it in her study until finally, at the very end of the episode, we watch this one solitary tear well up in her eye and fall down her cheek. It's an amazing performance by Olivia Coleman. Finally, something has gotten through. So do people need a queen, right? And if, and if they do, what is she for? That's the central question that the crown is asking. It's a question in a different kind of way, a question about figureheads, monarchies, royalty, that kind of runs through this particular Sunday of the church year. This is Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of the year. It's when we kind of trot out all of our royal coronation, Jesus as king stuff. This is actually my least favorite Sunday of the year to preach, um, if I'm being perfectly honest. It always comes right around Thanksgiving, which is my favorite holiday, and rather than getting like beautiful gourds and pilgrims and come you thankful people come, we get like enthronement and dominion and this holiday that was set up in the 20s to like reestablish the authority of the institutional church over secularized government, um, which leaves me frankly a little bit cold. My friend, my friend Catherine Nichols and I spoke on the phone this week and she said, surely you found somebody else to preach Christ the King. Um, and when she found out it was me, I actually had forgotten it was Christ the King. I'm like, oh no, I'm preaching on Sunday. She's like, Nathan, it's Christ the King. And I said, oh shoot. And I could almost hear Catherine like rubbing her hands together in glee. She said, you hate Christ the King. What are you going to say? <laughs> so <laughs> when Catherine was working here at Trinity, I would regularly complain to her about all of this heavily monarchical language that has, you know, accumulated around Jesus of Nazareth, thanks, I think, to an Anglican obsession with royalty, coupled with this centuries-long tradition of treating Jesus like he's a Marvel superhero, right? Super Jesus, the ruler of the universe. It's a theme that's all over, I mean, it's all over the New Testament, right? We get in this morning in the letter of Colossians. There's a, a New Testament scholar who sums up the entire message of the book of Colossians in two words, Jesus wow, right? Christ is the image of the invisible God, the writer says, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. Jesus is the best king. All other kings better watch their backs. That's kind of the message of Colossians. The folk singer Woody Guthrie had a kind of a similar message when in the 60s he wrote, let's have Christ for president. Let's have him for our king. Cast your vote for the carpenter that you call the Nazarene. He went on to say, it's Jesus Christ for president, God above as our king with a job and a pension for young and old that will make hallelujahs ring. And the last verse, you know Woody Guthrie, is even more pointed, right? Every year he says, we waste enough to feed the ones who starve. We build our civilization up and we shoot it down with wars. But with the carpenter on the way up in the capital town, the USA would be on our way. We're prosperity bound. Them's fighting words. They always were. They always have been. Christians have, have tended to, to resort to this kind of heavily political imagery for Jesus not just when we're afraid of what's happening in the world around us, although I think that's part of it. It's more particularly, Christians have kind of come to the monarchical stuff, the power stuff, when they feel a need to remind those in earthly power and governmental power that they are not the only game in town. And maybe we're in a day like that. 
who knows. Calling Jesus your king, calling him your lord, right? That was never intended as a term of endearment. That's not, a, that's not about private devotion. That's not a way of saying, this guy really matters to me. I love him a lot. Early Christians did not make up the word lord. They stole it. That's Caesar's title. They took it from the emperor and they appropriated it for Jesus. And they knew exactly what they were doing when they did it, right? To say Jesus is Lord or King of Kings and Lord of Lords, all of that would have had the same effect on ancient ears as if we started praying up here to President Jesus, you know, Lord of the White House of God, right? That was language that was meant to be jarring. It was meant to be provocative. It was meant to serve as a reminder. And so this day asks these kind of interesting questions about, like, power and authority. What kind of power does Jesus really have? Do we, do we need these, these figureheads, presidents and kings and queens? What use are they? These, these national leaders on the one hand, the people on whom we can project all of our desires and aspirations, people whom we can use as nat- natural, national scapegoats to express our frustration and our anger and our blame. Do we need them? Do we need kings and presidents and emperors? The, the pilgrims thought not, right? Our founding fathers thought not. Our republic was sort of founded with this suspicion of centralized authority embodying in, in one person, one guy with a lot of power. What does, what does Jesus have to do with that? This, this putative king, who in Luke's gospel at least, comes to this moment of supreme power and authority in the gospel text we read today. For Luke, the enthronement of Christ is when he hangs on a Roman cross wearing a crown not of gold, but of thorns placed around his head, the mocking purple robe of the empire around his bleeding shoulders, this sneering title, King of the Jews, emblazoned above his head. He comes to to authority in mocking and pain and suffering, and Luke throws that up and says, this is what kingship really means. Luke is interested, almost more than any other gospel writer, in, in tracing this almost like autobiographical journey of the man who would be king, the once and future king, right? Jesus' journey to claiming the authority of his crown. It's a story of of how the man destined to be king finds himself in this moment of, I mean, supreme defeat on the one hand, failure, right? As he renounces every aspiration to political influence and calls his followers into this weird kind of underground empire, the upside-down, topsy-turvy kingdom of God. This is what kingship looks like. This is what power looks like, according to the gospel accounts. Not a supreme pontiff, enthroned in majesty and splendor, seated at the right hand of God, but a crucified victim, the emblem of suffering and shame. St. Paul wrote, the message of the cross is foolishness to most of the world, right? It's, It's foolishness to many, but to those of us who are being saved, for those of us who find ourselves I mean, weirdly enthralled by this anti-king and feel ourselves like called to take up his mantle, drawn into the, the underground kingdom that he represents. For those who are being called, Paul says, the message of the cross is the very power of God. We preach Christ crucified, he says, not enthroned, not on glory. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called the very power and the wisdom of God. This is what the power of God looks like. So what does that, what does that actually, what does that power and that wisdom look like in a lived life? For Queen Elizabeth, at least the way that the Netflix series tells it, the power and wisdom that she is looking for comes when she puts herself in this situation 
that makes her profoundly uncomfortable. When she's asked to be a part of a, of a staged ritual of public mourning, when she's asked to encounter people whose pain she can do nothing about, and it makes her profoundly uncomfortable. She's asked not to play to her strengths, but to what she understands to be her great weakness. And she does not do it particularly well. She's frustrated by her inability to do her job. That experience becomes kind of a catalyst for a breakthrough for this woman who is, at least in the show, struggling to find a real emotional life. She learns how to weep, even if it's only in the privacy of her study. One solitary tear. I think we each find ourselves in moments like that, moments that, that test our resources and ask us not to play to our strengths, but to play to our weakness. This Thursday, many of you will, will gather here at Trinity to host our, our annual Thanksgiving dinner. We invite all of our neighbors to join us for this big feast. We serve a Thanksgiving dinner with all the trimmings. And for some of you, that's an opportunity to play to strengths, right? You're the most fantastic turkey carvers I've ever met. Jerry Petty taught me how to do this. Like, he knows what he's doing with a knife, right? You're excellent cooks. You're hosts. We know how to do hospitality, right? We know how to, how to gather people over a shared meal and hear their stories. But for some of us, and I'll admit, I'm in this category. The first time I walked into that room full of hurting people and just sat down at a table with nothing to do, right? nothing but my raw humanity, that was a daunting moment. I tend to go to like fix-it mode, right? It, that's what keeps me comfortable. That's what keeps me safe. Give me a job. Give me a spoon. Give me a table to stand behind. Those rules matter. But the hard thing sometimes is just to sit with somebody who is suffering, not to look away, not to flinch, not to try to cheer her up, look on the bright side, count your blessings, whatever. The Thanksgiving dinner, it's just one of many opportunities that we have to step into places not of competency, but of challenge. These places of humanity, where all we have is our ability to listen. Maybe a plate of turkey to help the relationship along a little bit. That's the honesty and the humility that is asked of the followers of the king who reigns from the tree, the one who finds his ultimate moment of triumph and, and, and glorification, not in exaltation, but in the midst of his own pain, to turn to those on either side of him, to reach out to those who are taunting him and offer them words of healing and comfort and forgiveness. That is power to turn to those who are berating you, mocking you, who will take your life, and first to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, and then to turn to one of them and say, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The king who reigns from the tree invites us, I think, into a different kind of power play. It's like a, it's a syllabus to learn how to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who celebrate, to, to tune our hearts and our instinct to the key to the, of those who are experiencing the world's rejection and to let them tutor us in the way of power and wisdom. This is Christianity's best answer to Netflix's question. What do people need a monarch for? For the earliest Christians, their answer is this. It's this guy on the cross. That's what leadership looks like. This is where a real and lasting source of power and strength can be found. Not in bashing in heads, not in telling people what to do, not in roles and titles, not even in public displays of emotion, however finely wrought they are. Come and look at this king. The psalmist said this thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene, right? This is a God 
who makes war to cease in all the world. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the, shield with, the shields with fire. That's kingship. That's glory. That's wisdom and power and strength. And so this underground movement, right, this, this different way of power, an upside-down kingdom of God, begins gradually to expand and to work on each one of us until we learn to surrender bit by bit to its powerful tug. Little by little, we actually become the queen who can weep alongside her people, the leader who can suffer, the parent who can let a child go, a child who can learn how to forgive a parent who has wounded her, a companion who can enter into somebody else's pain and not flinch, not look away, not solve, not fix, but be and comfort and heal. We become human beings with hearts that are open to the world in all of its pain and all of its beauty. And that's actually what the kingdom of God looks like, not the might of a hierarchical church, but everyday people, you and me, reaching out across our skittishness and our awkwardness and our fear and our pain and simply being together, silent and, and still. That's what the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. We're watching, we're waiting, we're listening. We're open and available to a healing that is ours through the power of the suffering one. It's in that spirit that we pray with our Lord, O oh God, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 